0: working out that we're taking roughly roughly a chapter of Lord's Day next week we'll, yeah, next week we'll split it into two um, Lord willing um, Ezekiel 13 verse 1 through 23 hear God's holy word then the word of the Lord came to me saying son of man prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy I say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration listen to the word of the Lord Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes among ruins. You have not gone into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divinations who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, The Lord declares? But it is not I who have spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel that, that they may know that I am the Lord God. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, the plaster they plastered over with whitewash. So tell those who plastered over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come and you and you oh, hailstones will fall and a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, you'll you will not be asked, where is the plaster with which you plastered it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume in my wrath. So it will tear down the wall which you are plastering over with whitewash and bring it down to the ground, that its foundation is laid bare, and when it falls, you'll be consumed in its midst, and you'll know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered over it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone along with the prophets of Israel who prophesy to Jerusalem, who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares the Lord God. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration, prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature, stature to hunt down lives." Will you hunt down the lives of my people, but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread you have profaned me to my people to put to death some who should not die and keep others alive who should not live. By your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt lives there as birds, and I will tear them from your arms and I will let them go. Even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood, when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life, therefore you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we're very, very thankful for your word. What a tremendous gift that you've given to the church. May we show our love and appreciation of your word by living on every word that proceeds from your mouth, O oh God, even as you've taught us to do, Jesus Christ. The pleasant words, the words that we considered this morning, we could never sin away your grace. May we receive them. And even these words, the harder words, your words, against the false within the household of faith. We pray, Lord, that we would have supple hearts. We would receive these words. We would learn by them. If we need life reformation, that we would reform, and we would stay in the narrow path and be good Bereans, testing everything we hear religiously against the standard of your word. We pray that you would grant these petitions, Jesus Christ, in your name we pray. Amen. The theme of judgment runs through the book of Ezekiel. We've talked about this a number of times, and my practice has been from week to week, rather than being um, redundant, which gets to be tedious, even though the theme of judgment is very, very similar, and we've said that the golden thread of the promise of mercy to God's people, I'll take out your heart of stone, I'll give you a heart of flesh, I'll convert you, the idea of regeneration. We saw it in chapter 11. It will come up again in chapter 36. There are regular tokens of mercy, 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 but they're droplets of mercy. And I admit they're droplets of mercy. You see this massive statements of judgment, 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 and you have to look between the lines and say, there is a promise of hope and mercy. But we do see them. So it's not all judgment. And the Bible is not a book of all judgment. There is judgment in the, in the Bible. But the fundamental reason or purpose of the Bible is a book of, um, It's a book of salvation. Yes, there is judgment, but it's a promise of salvation in Christ, our Redeemer, save, Savior, from judgment. But we are in a judgment passage. It's impossible to be faithful to the Bible, faithful to this text, and to make it say something that it doesn't say. I, I suppose you could eisegete the text and do that, but that would be a sin. In the previous passage, what we've been doing is saying, well, even if we were in a judgment passage, there does seem to be some distinction from chapter to chapter, and there is. And the distinction is just this. In the last chapter, you remember chapter 12, uh, the Lord God sends Ezekiel to go to the prince of the people, say the civil ruler. It's a theocracy at this time, so church and state are somewhat one. There is a division of labor, but he's sent to to speak to the prince. We'll call him the king, Um, but it's the prince, the civil ruler. And he rebukes the prince for being... um, for being faithless, wicked, unbelieving, all of those kind of things, and saying that you will go away into captivity, you remember this, you're going to go off to Babylon, but you'll, you'll never see it, but you're going to die there. And you remember that we quoted the book of Jeremiah, that God prophesied to um, Zedekiah through Jeremiah, you're going off to captivity because you've been living wickedly, you're an unbeliever, and God is going to bring his justice upon you, and they blinded his eyes and he died as a blind man in captivity. So God sent Ezekiel to rebuke the prince, and then the people themselves who are following the prince, uh, they also were rebuked for their infidelity. I've mentioned many, many times before, a uh, question and answer 151, how we aggravate our, our, in the larger catechism, how we aggravate our sins or make them more heinous in the sight of God. When a person in leadership is, 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 is sinning, they necessarily aggravate their sins uh, above those that they lead because they have the ability to lead others people astray. And that's exactly what we saw in the last chapter. The prince is more culpable, but the people are culpable for following the wicked practices of their prince. And so um, many of them were killed. And then the mercy portion of chapter 12 um, was on those people that were taken away to captivity. So you would think, well, if, if, if the mercy would be, not only are you not going to be killed by the sword, you're not even going into captivity, but that's not the case. God preserved their life by going away into captivity, and God converted his people in captivity. So sometimes we think, well, I'm in a crucible, and a cru- crucible is a bad place. No, a crucible could be a wonderful place. Many, 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 many true believers are are converted in a crucible. God uses the uh, the, the chastising time to draw them to himself. Think of the, um, think of the profligate, the prodigal. He was converted in a, a crucible. And so last week, there was the chastisement, the rebuke, the judgment of wicked prince and wicked people. And now here, what we find in chapter 13, very similar kind of a denunciatory language. Um, God promises to bring judgment, but this time we're looking at a different class of a person within the household of Israel. And this time, the judgment promised is against not so much the civil leaders, but against the church leaders, we'll call them. This is the Old Testament uh, prophet. And so, God has a word here for um, wicked prophets. Every realm of existence, the king over the civil realm. the the pastor over the church as it were every realm that God places us as his creatures in whatever sphere he's placed us we are responsible before God to live a holy life we're responsible to believe him we're responsible to obey him I won't answer for the president the president will answer for the president whether his government over this country was according to the word of God or not he will answer for it I will answer for my pastorate over this church. But we all are culpable and answerable before God to live a life worthy of the calling uh, that we find in Jesus Christ. So every sphere of life, when God says to each class of person, I have this against you, this against you, this against you, it teaches us to reckon our lives religiously. It doesn't matter what you do for a living, If you're living as a stay-at-home mom or you're living as a doctor, every sphere of our life as a believer is religious. I would argue as a creature, all creatures are culpable before God because all creatures are are religious, but particularly as believers. So the president is required to be faithful, and the prophet, the minister, is required to be faithful. And when they are not, when they are wicked and unbelieving, then God pronounces... um, a judgment upon them and I want to I want to see we're going to look at basically thematically um, God's condemnation of false prophets and we'll walk through some of the more salient points but I, I want you to look at part of Ezekiel's call he's the faithful prophet you have a faithful prophet called to proclaim judgment against faithless prophets and prophetesses part of Ezekiel's call and I was going to mention it this morning with Peter perhaps I will next week Uh, Peter names names. He says Judas is essentially a false believer. He's a false apostle. He's a false preacher. And he's been inspired by God to name names. Sometimes we think that that's not even very Christian to actually denounce a church leader, a preacher, a prophet, that it's almost sub-Christian or anti-scriptural, certainly would say, well, that's not very loving. Part of Ezekiel's call by God to be faithful to God is to preach to whom he sends, what words God puts into to his mouth, no matter what. So Ezekiel, to be a faithful prophet, cannot be a man-fearer. He has to be a, a God-fearer. And before I was a minister, I felt called to the ministry the moment I was converted. And God put me on the Methuselah plan. It took me a long time to be a minister. But all the while, while I was waiting and studying and so on, I used to look at a minister, and the minister, I would watch him go, oh, He skipped over that hard part in that passage. Oh, he dodged that hard part in that passage. And I would look around and i go, I bet I know. I bet he's afraid of her and he's afraid of him. And look, at. I would never do this if I ever got into the pulpit. I would never be afraid of people. And then I got in the pulpit. And then I got in the pulpit. Um, In my mind, I'm a UFC fighter. But, of course, I couldn't fight my way out of a paper bag. So theoretical or speculative preaching is very, very easy but to put ourselves in this man's position, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is told time and time again, I want you to say this. I can almost hear this guy's groan. It's like I, Isaiah asks, Here I am, Lord. And then he says, This is what I want you to tell the people. Essentially the same message judgment. And, and then Isaiah says, Well, how long? So initially it's like, Yes, Lord, send me. How long? So this is part of the divine calling of the prophet. Of course, I'm not a prophet. I'm a preacher. I'm not an inspired prophet. I'm an uninspired preacher, preaching, attempting to preach the inspired word. But part of the minister's calling is not only to comfort God's weary people, which I hope this morning's sermon did, because I preached that one for me, and, but also to denounce sin when God calls him to denounce sin. There's always a question in the OPC, licensure, ordination. Will you preach the law of God? Will you call men to to repent of their sins? Will you preach the judgment of God? And the answer should be yes, because the Bible teaches it. So a faithful minister, Ezekiel is a faithful minister. He's been called by God to do this. And I want us to see that this faithful minister is called not just to preach a judgment sermon generically to people, generically, He's called to preach to preachers. I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't really like preaching to preachers. I've been called to preach to preachers maybe five or six times in my life. Um, For presbytery, I've preached a few times. For seminary, I've preached for preachers. I don't like preaching to preachers. I, I get nervous and squirrely. I like preaching to regular people preaching to preachers, you think, oh, that guy thinks he's smarter than Calvin, and what do I know? I'm a knuckle-dragger. Why should I even preach to this person? It's, it can be very frightening business. So not only does he have to preach this judgment, he's preaching to ministers. The faithful minister is told to go to unfaithful ministers and to tell the unfaithful ministers that they're unfaithful and God will judge them. I can't think of a less pleasant task, but he's told to do it. And if we know human nature, people that are, in this case, false Christians, false believers, false prophets, they don't very much appreciate being told by a faithful minister, actually, God says you're a false prophet, and that's exactly what Ezekiel is called to do. Now. There, there, there are two ways to look at the audience here. He's told to, to preach, obviously, the explicit audience, um, the false prophets. It included the false prophetesses, but I'm, I'm redundant when I say false prophetess, JK. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a bit. So the immediate ob- audience is the false prophet. But the implied other audience is um, the people that listen to them. That's why I said at the beginning... The prince is culpable for his sin, but the people following the prince, culpable. The false prophet, culpable for their sin. People that listen to false prophets or false preachers or false teachers, they're culpable. It's not good enough to say, well, the hour of power he told me, my best life now, what do you know? I I never went to seminary. I, I don't know. Well, if you say you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and you have a Bible, be a good Berean. You should know the gospel. You should know the law. You should know the basics. You should test everything that you hear from the word of God. So we're responsible. So yes, the false preacher is responsible. But people that sit under a false ministry, for whatever reason, whether your Aunt Tilly built the church, or your Uncle Fred is the preacher, or whatever it may be, to sit under a false preacher, we ourselves are culpable. And if I could just say, and as an aside, I'm not feeling very patriarchal right now, but just along those lines, If you're a husband or a dad, it behooves you especially to make sure that the religious instruction in your home is under a solid preacher. So if your wife says, let's go to the false preacher, that's the one I like. And you know that that person is a false teacher, you should gently, lovingly say, honey bunch, (laughs) no, (laughs) we're going to go to the faithful preacher and then put your hockey helmet on. So those are the two audiences, the false preacher and those that listen to them. Now we're just looking thematically at this um, judgment section against them. So we've learned a couple things already. When God says to Ezekiel, go, and he says, the false prophets among my people, and it makes it seem as if most of the prophets that are prophesying, Ezekiel's not the only person that calls himself a prophet, that most of the leaders or the preachers in, the, in the, the household of Israel at this time, they're apostate, that they're false. And I don't find that myself strange. If you read Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, in relationship to the Old Testament, um, what happened to most, almost all of the military-age men that came out of um, Egypt, what happened to most of them, they died in the wilderness. And God said, I swore in my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. God does not have wrath for believers, only unbelievers. Wrath is for for unbelievers, chastisements for believers. Almost a whole lot of them were unbelievers. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came to Israel, did the Son of Man find faith in Israel? Did he when he came? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, um, almost a whole lot of them, they were unconverted. So this is not strange to me that when we look, that the bulk of the teachers of Israel are apostates, they're false teachers. And you would say, well, isn't that kind of a, a narrow view? I, I, it is a narrow view. But the road to hell is broad and easy, and most people are on it. And the road to heaven is narrow and hard, and very few find it. And what we find here is is that broad and narrow uh, view even applied to the teachers. So many, many, many of the teachers of Israel are are, are, are false. That would be a word for our day. And another thing that we learn just even more fundamentally The church is a mixed multitude. It's always a mixed multitude. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. That the church is a combination of those who are true sheep and those who are are false sheep or really goats, or in this case, uh, they're they're wolves in sheep's clothing. These are ravenous wolves from within the church, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20. And so when we look at the church as a mixed multitude, both in the pulpit and the pew, it teaches us a number of things about the church. The church is the household of God, the family of God, the bride of Christ, visibly understood and then invisibly understood, but here visibly understood. When we we acknowledge the blemishes and the sins of the church, we're not saying that the people of God, Israel of God, they're the exact equal of the Hittites or the Amorites. We're not saying that. But what we are acknowledging is that among the professing people of God, there are those who believe and there are those who do, do not believe. And that's every single generation. And that teaches us that the church as, as an entity does not save. I know there's always a saying, they ask this at Presbyterian, interact with the statement that God is your father and the church is your mother. And I know there's a way to take it in a good sense from a our, our, our Reformed view. I never like that. I, I I very much dislike that statement. Perhaps it's the Romanism of my youth. Um, The church does not save. I don't know how much I could say that. The church does not save. OPC, PCA, Episcopalian, Baptist, the church does not save. A human minister does not save. The only one that saves is God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The imperfect church and the imperfect minister present the perfect Christ and we present him imperfectly, Christ saves. And so when you come here and and God says, false prophet, false prophet, false prophet, false people, false false people in the household of God, how anyone can walk away and come up with a doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope or the fact that the the church saves except as a vehicle to present the saving Christ, that I agree with. But no minister saves. No preacher saves, no prophet saves, no priest saves. We have a priest, Jesus Christ. And so when we think of the church having a mixed multitude, um, I think it's Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember Lot's wife. Jesus Christ chooses Judas, who's called a son of damnation, a son of perdition, to teach the very same principle. This is why I'm against people calling me right, no one calls me that, but right, righteous reverend None of that. None of it's biblical. Read Matthew chapter 23. None of it's biblical. It takes away from the focus on Christ. So false prophets exist. And the church is a mixed multitude of true and false, weed and tares, goat and sheep. And so it, it's always been that, always been that um, way. Now, when I say that, I don't mean there can't be some particular church somewhere where the entire body of that church is regenerate. I'm not denying that I hope everybody here is regenerate. But I'm just arguing that the possibility of the bulk of the visible church uh, being all regenerate is highly unlikely because of what we see here. The second thing that we learn, not only do false preachers and prophets and Christians exist, we, we find something out about God. Um, God is sovereign. And I know Reformed people love to say sovereignty of God and we usually think it means just election or predestination. It means much more. When God says to Ezekiel, go tell the false prophets, it indicates that God knows something, everything. He knows the true from the false. Can you imagine being the false preacher, prophet? <laughs> I'm going to preach my lying sermon today knowing that you're a liar. And telling the people, God says, peace, peace, knowing you're lying. In the presence of an omnipresent God, in an omniscient, sovereign, omnipotent God. God says to his faithful men, tell the faithless men, I know who they are. I knew who they are. And oftentimes, as, as believers, we don't know infallibly. I, I don't, I'm not the infallible fruit inspector. The Holy Spirit is. Remember, even the guys, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, one of you is a devil, what did the guys do? Every one of the guys, except the one guy. They all said, is it I, Lord? Is it they did not know? Who is it? And there's Judas thinking, do, 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 do. God knows. So when we look at this business, it can be terribly frightening. The, the business of Ukraine, I have to almost shut, I have to shut the news off. I have to shut it off. I start to come unglued. When you look at a passage like this thinking, the church is overrun with heretic preachers in the Old Testament. What's going to become to the people of God? Rather than shutting the the news off, God says, "I, I know all about it. It's all under my control. I know who they are. I know their end. I'm going to bring about their end. So even though this is frightening, it's meant to comfort the believing. It's meant to comfort the true people of God. You won't always be abused with these abusers. When we get to Ezekiel chapter 34, God's going to say directly to these people again, you've been abusing my sheep, and I'm going to take you away from my sheep, and I myself will come and shepherd my sheep. This is the John chapter 10 of Ezekiel. And the people of God must be going like this. Wow, praise God. The people are being abused by these false Um, prophets, and God says he knows all about them. But it is a perplexing thing. I suppose it shows the power of unbelief. When people who say they believe in God and they're even preaching for God, they're actually living in such a way that indicts them, I would say, for their stupidity. How stupid it is to stand up in a pulpit and to say, thus saith the Lord. When you know It comes from your mind. It's the power of unbelief. And we we are a massive contradiction. And you could ask yourself, when we see that the church is this mixed multitude, there are the existence of false prophets, and God knows, we can legitimately ask ourselves, well, John, if God is all of those things, He's sovereign, He governs everything, if He's really that sovereign, why would a holy, all-perfect God Allow these people, these wolves, in among his lambs? Why would he do? Why would God permit allow false teachers and prophets and preachers in Christ's church? Why would he do it? What's the answer? Well, even if we can't get the specific answer, we can get the general answer. God says over and over and over again, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Is that a saving? No, that there are no that that he is the Lord is that salvific? No, this is a Philippians chapter two through eleven. Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then what they will, what they will, what will they hear? The believing will hear, come. And those who have just professed that Jesus is Lord and they've bent the knee and they're unbelieving, what will they hear? Depart, and they will know that Jesus is the Lord. It's a judgment. God says, I'm doing this to magnify my holiness. And now, what I'm saying is so contrary to the modern Christian thought. It's sad because I think we have an, an effeminate view, a wrong view of God. We would think, no, no, no. God never gets glory for his justice. God never glorifies himself in his wrath upon vessels of wrath. That's exactly what he's doing. That is exactly what he's doing. This is not simply an Old Testament principle. God permits, ordains, governs false preachers, prophets in his midst because he's going to magnify the mercy he has on vessels of mercy and get glory for that. And he is going to to magnify his justice and his wrath upon vessels of wrath and he gets glory for that. And as as I said, this is not simply an, an Old Testament principle. The Apostle Paul repeats it And he references God saying, for this reason I raised up Pharaoh. Not just permitted Pharaoh, but he raised him up. And he raised him up in order to pour out his just wrath upon him to magnify the mercy he has upon his elect. And and let me read that for us. Romans 9, 17. When you think about, why would God raise up wicked Pharaoh to subjugate and enslave the people of God? Same question. And here's the answer. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh to enslave God's people to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That means he's going to pour out judgment upon him. Then he goes on to say, so then God has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens who he desires. So God... Brings, permits, ordains these false prophet, preachers, teachers, because they mean to magnify his justice, his offended justice, his wrath, and it magnifies the mercy he has upon his people. And I will say this, even as a Reformed person who reads this kind of truth on a daily basis, I will confess it's not something that we, we, we like to hear, And it's for this reason. When we talk about the sovereignty of God as Reformed people, I think we talk about the sovereignty of God with a lowercase s. My minister lost his first wife to brain tumors when she was 42. And I remember he stood in this pulpit when I was not the minister yet, but just coming. And he said, God is so sovereign, he will take your breath away. And he's so sovereign you you tremble in fear at sometimes at his sovereignty and and i never forgot that because usually as a young calvinist you just think you're going to find arminians to beat up and tell them they don't believe in the sovereignty of god beloved every person here when god rises up in his utter sovereignty we are overwhelmed even the flesh of believers we find the utter sovereignty of God to be frightening. And certainly natural man, when God says, this is how sovereign I am. I will turn the heart of a king like a river. That man will be a vessel of wrath to magnify my justice. That man will be a vessel of my mercy to magnify my mercy. The natural man cries, that's that's foul. Un, un, unconverted man does not want God to have that much power. But when we look here... I find it a comfort to the saints, but this is partly meant for us to have a proper fear or a proper reverence or a respect or awe for this God. Now, the definition of a false prophet, obviously he's a false preacher, but let me first start with what a prophet is. A prophet or a priest, they're representatives, and the priest represents the, the, the people to God, and the prophet represents God to the people. And in this case, a prophet, in a biblical context, would be um, would be God's herald or God's spokesman. This is why I have in the hall, or I used to have in the hall, a hear ye, hear ye, in the land of my birth, New England. We would have the town crier, I suppose it was all up in uh, colonial New England. Hear ye, hear ye, colonial England. England. And you'd have the town crier. Um, the prophet is a town crier. He's a herald. He's a spokesman. He's not supposed to come with his own word. He's supposed to come in the name of the king and with the word of the king. And so related to that, a herald, a prophet, a preacher is also an ambassador. So having the authority of the king and the name of the king with the words of the king. That's that's a prophet. And a prophet is to come preaching God's word, all of God's word, and we can subdivide it. He's to proclaim the law of God and he's proclaimed the gospel of God. The law acts as a tutor to show us why we need the gospel, that we're guilty sinners and the wrath of God is upon guilty sinners. And then the gospel points us to Jesus um, for the alleviation of of that. And so that's a prophet. A prophet is is a herald or a spokesman for God. And obviously a false person is a person that's not been called by God. He's not been commissioned by God. He's not been equipped or empowered by God. He's not come, he may say he's coming in the name of Christ, but he doesn't come in the name of Christ. He's not preaching the inspired word of God. And instead, what, he, what God says over and over and over again, you're preaching a lying divination. You're preaching the figments of your own imagination. The New Testament talks about this all, all the time. Some of you all come from different churches, and I didn't come into the Reformed faith straight out of Catholicism and spend some time in Pentecostalism. And I've been on with many meetings, males and females, when people are getting special words of revelation. What's that? What? What? <laughs> and at the time, I believed them because I wanted the secret power. And I've seen people say, what, I'm getting a direct revelation. Okay, God, um, play what number in the lotto? Literally. And then they would turn and say to the group, God just told me to say this to you. No, he didn't. No, he did not. You just told you to say that to me. There's nothing new under the sun. You can turn on the internet. You can go high, low, anywhere. And you, God told me to say to you, no, no, you should have your Bible going. No, no. And after you determine no, God did not tell you to say that, you should go like this, click. Or you should stand up and walk out. There's nothing new under the sun. The faithful minister who's inspired by God, he's preaching the inspired word, he, he's told by God to say to these people, you're not preaching my word. I didn't call you. The book of Jeremiah has a number of chapters where God says to them directly, you say that I called you, you say that I sent you, but I never called you, I never sent you. Just as a very brief aside, this is not a plug for Presbyterianism, or, or it's not a slam against all independent type churches. It is a caution with independent Minded teachers of any stripe, people that aren't under the authority of any kind of ecclesiastical authority, there's a danger in that. When a man is self-called, whatever he may be, and he says, and you ask them, are there are there are there ministers, are there elders that you're accountable, accountable to? No one. I'm self-called. That is a bad sign. It is a bad sign. And the prophets should be subject to the prophets. And so they're preaching the, the, the lying divinations. And God is against them, and they're preaching lies. And I, I will point this out. This is language that we don't often like to hear in a Christian pulpit. We want to hear love, grace, mercy, kind, pen, peace, and those kind of things. Is it loving of God to call out these lying ministers for being liars through this faithful preach? Is that loving? And if so, to whom is it loving? One to God, to His own name, and then to the people of God, to the true people of God. We read, Tony read it for us. Chapter thirty is on church censures. It deals with church discipline. This is the benefit. This is the benefit. Say to the false prophet, and even to the people of God that are following these false prophets, that there there is certain benefit to being called a liar. You're not preaching the truth. You're a liar, and you're in danger of judgment. That might hurt your feeling, but there's great benefit to hearing it while you live. What's the benefit? You might get convicted by God, the Holy Spirit, and turn to Jesus and say, Thou son of David, I'm a liar. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. And then what will happen? You'll be forgiven. And what would happen if you are following a false minister and you believe a false gospel and some faithful minister comes along and says, Here's the danger. And you get your feelings hurt. But what can be some potential benefit? You reclaim the offender. You vindicate the honor of Jesus. You keep the the entire body from being corrupted. There's great evangelical benefit to this. Most churches don't practice church discipline anymore. They let every goofball in the world take the pulpit. Every goofball in the world take a lectern. And they infect the people of God. They dishonor Christ. And they promote error, 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 error. It is not loving under the guise of being loving. And it's love to God and love to people for God to call these people out. So there's false prophets and we see something I don't want to spend a lot of time on the false prophetesses. Uh, lying against God is not male specific. We see that the females are getting in in on the game as well. Um, there are a number of women, maybe five in the old five in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament. There are a number of women, five and two, not more, that are referred to as prophetesses. Uh, Navi and Choose is the word for seer in Hebrew. But nevertheless, um, Miriam is called a prophetess, Moses' sister. And uh, Huldah is called a prophetess. Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. Well, there's a few others. And then Anna in the New Testament, she's a, called a prophetess, Luke 1, Luke 2. And then the seven daughters, virgin daughters of Philip. But I will say this no, ju- uh, and also uh, uh, Ruth, judges, um, she's a judge. So so five and two. Now, some people come here and say, see, you male prophets, and you have even Stephen female prophets. That's not true. The fact that you have a female prophet, even in the Old Testament, is highly unusual, five and two. And even the five that you look at, since it's so extraordinary, why do I say it's extraordinary? It's extraordinary because God's ordinary way of teaching his instruction is through religious instruction to his people is a male and not a female. And it follow, follows the principle of male headship. I, I'm not crazy patriarchal person, but there is a principle of male headship. And so God's ordinary course of instruction in the home, in the church, in the state, is through the ministry of, of a male. And not that they're ontologically better, they just have different particular economic roles. So when you come to a prophetess, a female prophet, it's almost like you have to put your extra slow down glasses on and say what's going on here. And then for, for brevity's sake, maybe I'll send you the notes on what I have here. Um, I'm going to for forego what's happening here. These women clearly are, are lying. Um, I, I think they're false by virtue of being a woman prophetess um, for, for various reasons. But I want to jump to the New Testament epoch, which is much more clear. In the New Testament epoch, I hate to say this, but I will say it. A woman... Is forbidden to be a preacher is clear in the New Testament epoch. Maybe it was not... I think it's clear in the Old Testament. Maybe it's not as clear. Is clear in the New Testament epoch. God forbids a woman to teach men in a religious context. And I'm not saying the, the mom and the grandmother can't teach the kiddo, of course. That's where Timothy learned Jesus from. I'm not saying the wife, along with her husband, can show Ap- Apollos a more excellent way. Of course you can. This is not that... Women are religiously mute. That's not the point, and the Bible doesn't teach that. And it's silly to say that. It's kind of like I forget what that is—a straw man. Um, you can't be a preacher. You're to you're you're to receive instruction quietly under the ministry of God's man. And so, if, for the false prophets and for these false prophetesses, there's there's something that our flesh, our flesh always wants what God forbids. The woman wants to lead because she's told to help and then she wants to lead and the guy wants to be in the garage when he's told to lead and we, our flesh always wants what we're not supposed to have and and so these women and we see there's a there's a bit which I can't say as probably politically incorrect there's an aspect of their femininity is that a word that comes out in their false teaching preaching they're making all these special clothings they have amulets and magic things and veils and God says, well, I'm, I'm going to rip them off. I'm going to rip your veils off. And I'm going to show you to the people for what you are, a false prophetess. I think in the book of Revelation, maybe chapter 2 or chapter 3, there's another false prophetess. So nothing's new under the sun. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Um, I watched a woman the other day, Way Down Workshop. She was very, very famous a while ago. And then she started a church, such and so, such and so. Stunning, 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 stunning to me that anyone with a Bible, anyone with a scrap of the Spirit would sit for five seconds under that whatever sheet. That's not preaching. But people do. How can we do that? How do we do it with the Bible? We're sola scriptura. We're Protestants. And then we come that runs something that runs, I understand what I'm saying, runs utterly contrary to our culture. Utterly. The Word of God doesn't change This isn't men good, women bad. You have goofball men here and goofball women. And we're being told by God, I will show you my people for what they are. And they talk back to God. And and, and, and we see some of the marks of a false prophet. What are they saying to the people? Whatever the people want them to say. Peace, peace. What are they not saying to the people? You all are sinning. (laughs) Repent. Repent. False prophets don't preach on sin. They don't preach on hell. They don't preach on repentance. They don't preach on holiness. They don't preach on Christ. What do they preach? Everything's wonderful. Peace. Best life now. You're not going to go off to Babylon. No. There's no judgment. Don't even believe in judgment. Buy another amulet. Everything's okay. No sin. No law. No holiness no repentance, no judgment, no blood of Christ. Oh, beloved, this is here for our instruction to make us be cognizant of who we listen to religiously and judge every, what does is, what is the Apostle John say? Test every spirit. If you walk into a church and there's a lady in the pulpit, please leave. She shouldn't be in the pulpit she should receive instruction quietly. And if it's a man in the pulpit and he's not preaching on the law, on the gospel, on sin, on Christ, on holiness, on judgment, on heaven, find a church that will be faithful. Our souls are dependent upon it. And then if we have children or grandchildren or a husband or a wife or friends that we care about, our souls are dependent upon it, as well as the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.